Matthew Fluarty is a good guy. He's also a curious, thoughtful, passionate, patient, humble dot connector who asks as many questions of himself as he does the cosmos in his roles as a poet, essayist, curator, policy wonk, and a very, very deep listener. And that's just scratching the surface. Art of the Rural, the organization he founded in 2010, describes its work as knowledge sharing, network gathering, and rural-urban exchange that manifests as barbecues, exhibitions, public policy, newspapers, dances, case studies, and I'll add my two cents here, the thousands of stories that rise up from all that. The work is community-based, community-driven, and very long-term. And actually, if I had to boil it down to its essence, I would describe the art of the rural as a story liberation movement. In our conversation with Matthew, we'll hear about some of that work, like High Visibility, a partnership with the Plains Museum which aims to reframe the prevailing narrative that defines rural America and Indian country, and the American Bottom Project, which explores the geography, history, people, and stories of the vast floodplain of the East St. Louis region at the confluence of the Missouri and Mississippi rivers, a socially and environmentally fractured landscape where the Cahokia Mounds UNESCO Heritage Site abuts a Superfund site, where the first incorporated African-American town in the U.S. abuts the site of the country's most notorious race riot, and where a powerful Mississippi River flows disconnected from its still vital floodplain. Needless to say, there's a lot to learn. So, listen up. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part one, stewarding. How are you? I'm good, very good. (laughs) Where are you, Winona? Yeah. A town on the banks of the Mississippi River, located within Dakota homelands. It's historically the summer site of Cheap Wapasha of the Mittawakatan Sioux. It's a town of about 23,000 folks, give or take. And it's a town where that deep cultural history is on the ground in terms of the land and the buildings present. One of the really powerful attributes of our community is that we have a Winona Dakota Unity Alliance. So this is a community that is collectively getting it right, getting it wrong at the same time, but making progress towards thinking about what it means to live here. One of my favorite places of all time. Really? Wow. When were you here? Well, you know, I lived in Minnesota for 13 years. We did the Purpose Center Artists and Educator Gathering for about eight years and four of them were in Winona. Oh, wow. It's a, a statewide open space technology gathering of 250 crazy people for five days, oh basically using the facilities there in that old convent, throwing pots, arguing, singing songs. Fabulous moment in history. I think. Wow. So it was really a big sort of Woodstock summer event. Yeah, the history of those things come and go, but it was, it was one of the most important things I've ever been a part of. Really extraordinary. And you know, the interesting thing about it is that if you looked at who came, right? I'd say 60% of the people who came to that were from small school districts around the state. Oh man, um, wow. 
for obvious reasons, to connect with their colleagues and break bread and act a little crazy outside of the bubble of their little universes. It was wonderful. Really wonderful. Oh, man. That, that is so beautiful. <laughs> right. One small story. We got it in our ideas that one of the nights for the meal, that because it was open space, are you familiar with open space and how that works? Mm. So one of the sessions was we're going to cook dinner for 250 people. And, and so we commandeered the industrial kitchen with the help of the people that normally cook dinner. And our tradition was, was to get a lot of clay and a lot of chickens and to build these sculptures with chickens inside them and then fire them. And every table had a chicken and clay sculpture and a hammer. And they wailed away at the sculpture and, and got their dinner. Oh, there was a live chicken in the sculpture that then was fired? No, a, not a live one. <laughs> no, a dead chicken in the sculpture from the kitchen, from the refrigerator. Yeah. Whoa. Chicken and clay. It's a fabulous dish. But like it'd be edible? Like you could eat it? Oh, are you kidding me? It's some of the best chicken you're ever going to eat. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Man, that kind of blows my mind. That's all. <laughs> yeah, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. So Matthew, first of all, thank you for doing this. Your work is extraordinary and it's broad-based and you've touched a lot of people. And I'm probably along with you, one of those people who believes in off-center uh-huh. as where the sparks happen with the least encumbrance. Mm-hmm. You get surprised. <laughs> nicely in those kinds of places. So I'm enamored of those environments and you have spent your life cultivating them. So when you're sitting around the table, maybe with a couple of distant relatives who are wondering, what's Matt been up to in his life? How do you describe what you do in the world? Wow. That's a really great question. I I mean, like the way that I would describe this work to my family and I think a way that I, th- I hope that they appreciate it. Uh, coming from multi-generational farming family is that it's ultimately work with people and it's different than the work that one would do in a farm or the work that one would do in town in a business. But it's an endeavor that involves a lot of folks and we're working towards goals and outcomes that we might never reach, which is I think the hardest part when describing a project I think especially with Art of the Rules or some of the collaborations I'm a part of, there really is, there never is like a conclusion to any of it. Hooks working together towards something. And I think one of the hooks that's, that's always been helpful for me when explaining our work is that it's very place and land-based, which is a value that a lot of folks share. There's just that work of trying to honor the land. And I think just be in the field. I think the field is a powerful metaphor for my family. You know, you have Angus cattle in the field, you have tomatoes in the field, but there's a kind of caretaking that happens with folks in work. And I think the other bit that I think that helps a lot when I share this work with family and friends was really focusing on the cultural piece. Like art is a really, for so many reasons, a really challenging word. That cultural, that that kind of connective tissue that we all build together in a community. I mean, even if that's not what folks are maybe primarily interested in in their life. There's something that attracts people to how other folks work together and tell their stories. 
So when you're sitting down with folks and they're asking, hey, Matt, I know what you're up to has something to do with art and artists. How do you make the translation so that they don't think you're trying to establish a branch of the Met in some small Missouri town? A way of framing that I think about a lot that is, is partially a joke, but I think is partially like very real to folks is that I think uh, an image of the artist is the image of someone, A, in a loft, sipping straight gin. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And like you go into the space and you create something and you don't really give a damn what it means to anyone. Because uh, the other thing attached to it is that somehow artists are making tremendous amounts of money and are enraptured by the art world and the market and all of that. And I think for me, like where you can kind of push the bookcase and find a hallway in between the walls I think so much of the art that we love itself is stewarding culture and is stewarding generational memory uh, and is stewarding, stewarding memory of place. Certainly there's a lot of art that doesn't do that, but I think the artists that we have worked with, uh, with Art of the World and some of the stories that we've tried to share, I think have kind of hovered over that kind of space. I think some of our more recent work, like the High Visibility Initiative with the Plains Art Museum, like we've begun to think about the more traditional forms of art, like painting, how that work is absolutely stewarding those values as well. And a good bit of the work that is close to us is socially based, social practice based mm -hmm. work, community based work. All of these, all of these words have parentheses around them and all of them feel inadequate as descriptors. Part two, Saget. So I'm your, your uncle that you don't know very well. And I'm saying, okay, social community. I get that. I live in a small town. All right. Give me an example. An example that I that I would give to one of my uncles in that situation. Um, do you know that levy across the way from the farm? Do you know the history of that levy? Do you know uh, that there are artists and there are community storytellers everywhere? And I think in particular in non-urban regions, we've been deeply disadvantaged by not knowing those stories and there not being resources and support mechanisms for us to know those stories. Perhaps the most extreme example of what, what you're asking, Bill, is an ongoing project where we, we're working on with a series of artists, including Jesse Vogler and um, Ben Colton in the American Bottom, which is the East St. Louis floodplain. And when I think about the Ohio Valley, where I'm from, Appalachia, the upper Midwest, I think something that typifies those regions that filters down to this idea of sitting across from your uncle at, at a family meal and that person kind of asking like, well, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> like, what is the meaning of this? How do I find a connection point? The folks want connection points. I think we often don't give folks enough credit for the ways that they're seeking to connect to the work and to the artwork. But the American bottom is this region that's right across from the river from St. Louis. It's half urban, it's half rural. It's essentially an enormous extractive zone for St. Louis, you know, folks, Maybe in the, in the upper Midwest, we see Gary, Indiana has that kind of relationship with Chicago. There are a number of these sorts of spaces in the country. And what's similar to the American bottom, which is a very exaggerated example of this, is that often for a number of reasons, we're really dislocated from the really wide range of cultural history that is all around us, the generational history that's there. It expresses itself as like, a hill that is there for a particular reason. It expresses itself as like a cultural tradition that we that we just accept it is here, but we've never kind of asked how it got here and what it means and what its own generational memory is. And 
extreme example that, that I could offer of this was from the American bottom with a town called Sauge. I don't know if you passed Interstate 70 through St. Louis, but in a car and you're heading east, you're crossing into Illinois. Like what you're crossing into is the American bottom, the floodplain there. And the town that is just to your right, just south of the bridge for Interstate 64 is Sauge, which used to be called Monsanto Town. It was where the Monsanto Chemical Works began. And if ever there was a place where the community history was very fragmented and largely invisible, it was that place. And our experiences there, just in working with folks, the work in the American bottom has been really long-term, it's probably about eight years old at this point, but a key component of it feels pretty central to a lot of what I have experienced in other non-urban regions myself. There's like an efflorescence of cultural knowledge <laughs> but very rarely the avenues for it to be shared. And there's so many reasons for that, but those avenues aren't there. And the American bottom, to my mind, is one of the most significant regions in the country. But if you live there, there is no, like, where do you go? It's a fragmented story. There aren't books. Until we began working on it, there wasn't even sort of a website. The work that we did with folks in Sage and with some of their neighbors across that region was to make a community newspaper that shared the lived experiences of what folks were just experiencing there, but like connected that to, to those kinds of historical stories, like the kind of stories that like me explaining something to my uncle would lead into, you know, like you go from, you know, we're, we're videotaping the corn harvest this year, but the corn harvest leads into a story about somebody's grandpa. It leads into a story about when settlers Absolutely. came to this region that opens up all this space. And that's like a process I really trust that one thing can lead to another. If, um, uh, if you're sitting across the table from your uncle and you just trust that it can open up without forcing it. You know, I think about all the natural forces that are a given all around us, but particularly in the rural world, because we have to come to the conclusion we are not at the center of a universe of our own making. We're actually in partnership with the world around us. And those natural forces, the patterns and the rhythms, um, one of them is you go to the cafe and all anybody's doing is what some people call gossip, but it's storytelling. <laughs> and if you're actually interested in a place, you just shut up and listen and it will rise up like a tsunami. There are a thousand stories being woven there. And so in a sense, it feels like what you're saying is there's a natural resource here. We're going to harvest it and make it available and let it do its work naturally because it doesn't need a heck of a lot of fertilizer. It's already there. It just needs a space. Oh, absolutely. And I think for, for us, the role is to be there and to not disturb that process. I think, I think about a commonality across the kind of wide range of folks that we collaborate with. It's take your blinders off and to not push outcomes or push narratives you go into a place simply to hear stories and to help almost on a material level, how you can help. Like you can help by helping to make a newspaper, not determining an outcome about what the stories are about or like the some grand sense of meaning with a capital M because folks are making meaning every day. Like something like radically defamiliarizing does happen, but it happens through the, the, the passion and the agency of those folks as opposed to it being kind of imposed on them by something, if that makes sense. It does. Like, you're saying that when a story like the one about that levee across the way from your uncle's farm, you know, a, 
a story that might come and go really quickly in a conversation in a cafe, but when that story makes its way onto the pages of the new community newspaper or a song or a community play, it can change the context just a bit, you know, so it becomes a little less familiar and a little less invisible. So that Levy story has a chance of being regarded, I guess, in a new way. It's kind of like helping remove the layers of soil from the community story. Part three, the second hill. So Matthew, in a wounded social ecosystem like the American bottom, I know from my own experience, what you're up to can be a very delicate undertaking. It really makes sense that you're taking your time in that community. Could you say a bit more about how you came to this way of working? So like one of the wild tidbits about my own process in my arc with Art of the Rural is that I come to all this like totally through the academy. I started Art of the Rural in the middle of my PhD. So this is (laughs) English literature? Is that where you are? Irish literature. And I had experiences in Ireland, which really deeply formed my own sense of so many of these questions, even that we're talking about, Mm -hmm. how the greatest cultural institution in many Irish towns is the pub in a totally unironic way. That is the keeper of knowledge and generational history. That's one of those spots. But I think one of the orientations that, that I take to this work to come back to the question is just like in studying literature, and for me, it was studying 20th century literature and looking at it from a rural perspective, which was at the time, it was very novel that I was doing it, you know, asking questions about what the place of rural land and culture and economy was. But one of the things that my advisors, Gwen Batten and Dylan Johnston, really taught me through this process, I mean, on one hand was trusting my rural roots, which by no means is that something that the academy ever truly endorses. Perhaps it's changed, but my experience of it wasn't that way. But to trust that But then to simply ask, what are the ways in which our town is talking about itself and being talked about beyond itself? And how through simply just sitting with folks, hearing their stories, coming up with collaborative work, you know, are we serving those values? It's almost inevitable that those values are going to defamiliarize folks' assumptions about who we are, but also about how we can work together, how we can move forward with the visions and the senses of change that we hold most dear. I think whether you're in a rural place or a neighborhood in a city, I mean, there, there are cliches and pieties and euphemisms about what's possible and what isn't, why we're here and why we're not here. And it's really remarkable to me how the presence of an artist or a culture bearer within that space doesn't disrupt the values or the lived experience that folks have in that circle, but just provides these other little avenues and side streams to get at the main river. But one of the things, and maybe you take it for granted because this is your practice, but nine out of 10 folks who are interested in what you just said probably couldn't pull it off. And it's because it's about trust in the same way that when you sit across the table from a vet, somebody like me who did not serve has only so far I can go. And so trust is not something that is negotiated. It's something that is built and earned and and is cultural. It's more cultural than it is intellectual for sure. And for whatever it's worth, your love of what you're talking about matters probably more than your PhD. <laughs> Amen. I think. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah. And one of the reasons I'm really grateful just for us to talk is like I came into this work just through Art of the Rural. So it has been a really powerful long-term sense of learning, but like that there is such, there's a really deep tradition of how folks come into that space you're talking about. Like for me, the touch point is it's Rowside and Apple Shop. It goes back way further than that. And that there, there's a tradition that folks can draw upon such that like they can be sitting across from the uncle or a veteran who lives in their community and do that work with responsibility and trust and dignity for everyone involved. And it's one of the things that makes me most hopeful about the moment we're in, about the way that knowledge is being shared, is that as a practice in a strategy is becoming more and more visible to artists. And for so many folks, 2016 was a turning point. And for so many obvious reasons that almost need to not be remarked upon at this point, but it also was a turning point in terms of how a lot of folks in the arts and cultural space began to orient themselves towards these very sorts of scenarios you're like laying out her bill. Probably every two or three weeks for about a year and a half, I would just get an email from somebody who lived in an urban area who wasn't connected necessarily to the rural work, who wanted to come to a rural area to find commonality, to discover what rural people want. They were pitched as artistic projects, but it was as if they wanted to look at culture inside of a Petri dish. And there has been like so much of that in the last four years. And I think the visibility around that is, is enormously important, but we've all heard how it's gone wrong and it's gone wrong because of this question of trust. And I think a word that I think is like really important for all of us to think about as we move through the next couple of years is like a really deep desire to find common ground as if that's the end in the means itself. And that sort of insistence towards that, I think just really paves over the difference that is there. The difference that is often, it is not palatable and it is ugly, but it is the engine for us getting somewhere together. So here's an interesting parallel universe. One of the great gifts of my spending more than a decade working in the California Department of Corrections was learning how to operate in a world where the kumbaya option was just not available. My my partners, so to speak, the people I was negotiating with were wardens of large correctional institutions and all their staff, and they taught me something I have tried to share in my own teaching through what I think is the threshold question that needs to be asked in any attempt at partnership across difference. So I'll ask my students, if you're going to do a joint project, do all the partners need to be on the same page and agree up front on the same ideological, philosophical, moral, ethical value systems? And most people who have not been in this work very long say, well, yeah, of course. But what they don't know is that this is the rough landscape of the work to understand and respect that coming together is probably not going to happen you know, the way you think on your terms. Common ground, of course, can be found, is often found, but you have to make it. You have to build it out of some experience you have together in the trenches, like Ben Fink, who describes in rural Kentucky, you know, we gotta, we got to dig a ditch together before we have a conversation about practically anything. And I don't think that's rural or urban. I, 
I think it's human. And as you know, uh, out on the farm, trust is not just an agreement to be nice to each other. It's showing up and being accountable in the work every day because so much depends on it, right? It's just not an option, which brings me around to another question that I have for you. How in the hell did you get from hanging out with Angus cattle out in the field to an interest in, an obsession with, and a PhD in Irish literature? Yeah, it's, to think backwards that way is really bewildering to me on some level, because some of it does mm. seem so counterintuitive on some level, but I'm grateful for how you frame it as like an interest in Irish literature and Irish studies. Because I think about Grant Wood, Grant Wood said that he didn't understand Iowa until he went to Paris. And I had a similar experience. You know, I had the privilege to do a master's in creative writing in rural Ireland in County Donegal, which is, it's the county, the northernmost county in the Republic. So it's essentially, it's bordered on more than one side by Northern Ireland itself. And yep. to do that work right after the Good Friday Agreement had been signed. So this still was a space where the troubles and that sectarian violence was still very fresh. I was there at the same time. Ooh, I think about that moment kind of an analog to where we are in this country a lot. Yeah, I, I agree. I have a lot to say about that. But <laughs> so I'm in that space. The part of County Dongal I was in, it's called the Gaeltacht. It's where Irish was predominantly spoken. The signs were in Irish. It just a, was a real locus of really deep cultural heritage and resistance, resistance to English colonialism. There just was a lot happening there, a lot which I was largely unaware of before I got there. And County Donegal isn't Appalachia, where I'm from, but you can kind of squint your eyes and you start to see things. And just that, again, that was out of my element, but I saw where I was from in Appalachian, Ohio, and in, in a really different light, I think because of that experience. You know, and to give some context, I come from Jefferson County, Ohio. My brother and his family, my mother and father, are multi-generational farm, seven generations. My parents' farm, which I grew up on in the 1980s, my parents lost it in the mid-80s through the farm crisis. And so I lived across the Midwest from the time I was in second grade, pretty much until I went to Ireland. So I saw a lot. And it was interesting simply to be in a place like County Donegal in the Gale Talked, which tradition was really deep and it was everywhere. This goes back to the question about suing cross from your uncle. It was it was in every it was in the food culture, it was everywhere. And what drew me to um, my own poetry writing, but also to Irish poetry, were the ways in which tradition and place and land were just so central to the work. And in particular, it was just moving to me the ways in which the poets and musicians and artists in Ireland, they're held in a really deep place of honor and that really moved me. And so a lot of things connected. When I came back from that experience and kept writing and wanted to just more deeply understand the context, the political context for that work. I tried my hand at learning Irish for a while. It was a, <laughs> a painful learning experience I'm grateful for. Irish is very hard. It's it's very counterintuitive to our Western sense of even how a subject relates to an object. It's very integrated. It's lovely. It opened up a space for me just to think about where I was from over the long term to think about it. And I was writing poetry about the farm in Appalachian, Ohio. So there was always this analog to what I was studying. 
And I was living in Boston at the time with my wife. I was at Boston College studying Irish studies. Is that I had a chance to go to a conference probably in 2005 that was in Virginia and was looking at rural culture and community development. And what drew me to it was that like a number of the Apple Shop films were going to be shown there. And there was going to be like a day trip to Apple Shop. And I think for folks who grew up in more of a, a full internet age as children, it's the thing I try to share is like, there was like once a moment where these things were not eminently visible to us, but Apple Shop was there and Apple Shop had a website and I had the chance to go to this conference and to see a number of the Apple Shop films, which was just like so powerful to me. I just, words almost don't approximate how powerful it was. And then we went on the bus tour and got to see Apple Shop and Whitesburg and meet a number of the folks, meet some of the filmmakers. And I think a, th a thing that I seek in my work that I really hope that we can help create the conditions for with folks, just the moments where the dots in the sky become connected into a constellation and they're being at Apple Shop, like it really happened for me. And I saw these folks working together to tell the really hard stories about what it was like where they were. And to do that across film and theater and radio and books and through the community partnerships that Apple Shop has just been so incredible in our field and achieving with so many people. And it was a really overwhelming experience. And at a place where I still was just trying to reckon with like, what does it mean to be where I'm from? I knew that mm -hmm. Studying Irish literature and art. It's like you're studying one hillside, but you're talking about a second one. And there's a lot of power in that. But I knew I was also talking about this second hillside. And I remember leaving, leaving Apple Shop and there's just like a point where you just get out of the holler and you're up on a point. And I really haven't told a lot of people this story, but I looked across the valley and I saw one of the mountains that was going through mountaintop removal. And it was a, like a moment of really deep awareness for me. Part of my practice is within a Zen tradition and I could describe it any number of ways in that way, but it was a moment, a really powerful moment for me. I just, like I pulled over and when I had stopped heaving in tears, like it, it just was a moment that, uh, Rilke says this in his poem, the uh, archaic torso of Apollo. Just that moment where you realize that uh, there's no place that does not see you, you must change your life. And that really was the point where I just started to get a little more serious about well, what are the connections here between this thing I'm studying and the places I'm from that I value. And it still took about seven or eight years, truly until the death of my grandmother and being back home in Appalachia for that and really registering not only her really deep service to the community, she was a teacher, she was on the fair board, you know, farming family running a dairy farm. She really helped just helped so many folks in so many ways. And that was the second moment for me where I was delivering a remembrance of her at the memorial. And I looked out and I saw my family and I saw the folks in town. And and I felt, a, I simply felt to honor her, but also my place in that community and what we've all been through. There's like, like, like there has to be something I can do. And it was really just that. And then I started the Art of the World blog maybe a week later. Uh, just thinking, I'm doing these voyages through the internet to try to find some of this work. I, maybe I should just share it. It was really just that. And then it, it took a course after that I could not have expected. But it 
<laughs> it does go back to County Donegal in Ireland. It's just strange how these associations build on each other. Well, to me, it's not so strange that our stories meander and arc and often return to a new place that is both an end and a beginning, which is what we're about to do with the end of Chapter 1 of The Art of the Rural Story and its continuation in two weeks with Chapter 2, where we'll hear more about the saga of Sage, the importance and danger of nostalgia, crushed beer cans, and the amazing story of family video. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It's written and hosted by me, Bill Cleveland. Our theme and soundscape are by the stupendously talented Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our sound effects come from freesound.com, and our inspiration rises up from the spectral and lurking presence of Ook 235. If you have any comments to share or suggestions for guests, drop us a line at csac at artandcommunity.com. Until next time, stay well, do good, and spread the good word.